0: Client with a rework department it was a financial services firm, and they wanted me and our team to help them make it more efficient. They wanted to do the rework faster. So I told my client this story, and I could see that light bulb go off like, oh, right, we're just getting good at something we probably shouldn't be doing. And, you know, that detracts from satisfying work, right? Are we just getting people in some do loop because we haven't figured out how not to do that.
1: Welcome to Work Matters where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. I am your host Thomas Bertels. Our topic today is how to become a better leader and my guest is Elizabeth Swan. Elizabeth is an experienced process improvement consultant and change leader with over 30 years experience. PEX Network has named her as one of the top 50 operation excellence thought leaders. She's the co-host of the popular Just-In-Time Café podcast and the author of two books, Picture Yourself a Leader and The Problem Solvers Toolkit. In today's discussion, we explore how executives can build their own leadership capacity. What are the leadership principles that help people effectively manage change within organizations? What are the behaviors and attitudes that leaders can embrace to improve work What is the role of automation in change management? And how can process improvement ease the pain points and contribute to more lasting success? Elizabeth, welcome to the Work Matters podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Thomas.
1: I've been enjoying your latest book, Picture Yourself a Leader, for our listeners and viewers. Here's a copy. Um, And I really love it. I think it's an excellent book. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about this book? What is it about and what prompted you to write it?
0: I guess in one word, COVID. <laughs> you know, I think about, you know, I was a road warrior like you, you know, and COVID took us off the road and gave us all time to think. What we did with our time was, you know, kind of up to us. But I've got, you know, thirty plus years in the business and have been a a consultant, a coach, an instructor, designer, and uh, you know, I've learned over the years and I thought, well maybe it's time for me to share, right? I've learned this stuff. I've been successful. Why not uh, let others know, you know, like what helped me get where I am? So um, I started writing stories. You know, you probably do the same thing. I use stories to teach. I use them to, you know, influence, to uh, connect with other people. And My chosen venue, kind of a good uh, workplace venue, I think is LinkedIn, right? So I chose, well, I'm going to, I'm going to post my stories there. And I realized a lot of what I was posting was things like times that I had made a mistake or I'd been involved in someone else making a mistake. And, you know, I was putting those out there and then saying, because of that, right, I learned to do this, right? And then I'd ask people in our community and say, what, you know, what did you do in this situation? People I knew, people I didn't know, I just put it out there. And um, people chimed in, right? There were conversations. Some of them got extensive. Some of them, you know, really hit nerves. And when I looked at what people said and gave, they gave their own stories or they gave examples or they gave a tip or they gave, A book that they enjoyed and I learned even more and the other thing I did involved in this as you know was I would post an illustration uh, that captured the story that I was putting out there and my family is full of full-on professional sculptors painters ceramic artists I am a bit player but I I do like drawing you know so I I drew the the people in the situations that I was describing and I, it was a process, you know, sort of get the essence of the issue and it, and, and the emotion of the issue. Right. And a lot of, I find a lot of corporate, you know, clip art, graphics, whatever. Graphics are actually, you can get more sophisticated ones, but often they don't include a face or eyes or expressions. And I wanted to show, you know fear frustration excitement all the things that are part of work that maybe we don't discuss those things but they're there and when we don't acknowledge them you know workplace suffers so that's kind of what what sparked me and and uh what the book kind of contains those those lessons those things i wanted to share
1: it says in the cover right illustrated micro lessons for navigating change and and one thing I really love about the book is the format, right? You've got 50 chapters. Each one is only four or five right? pages long, including right, your drawings. Each one has a memorable story from your own experience. Uh, you have a section on the wisdom of the crowd, which I guess is like the right incorporating the, the commentary you got on LinkedIn. Um, so, so I think it's very digestible. I found myself, as I read through the book, making notes and, and connecting with it. So I can really highly recommend it. What are some of your favorite chapters uh, in the book and, and, and why those?
0: Oh, that's a hard question, <laughs> but um, I I will say I have, I've heard, I didn't think about that at the time, but the format caused them to be bite-sized nuggets. Like you're saying, I even had one person say um, they really appreciate the book because it's good for people with ADHD. <laughs> they can just pick it up, read it for five minutes and, and get something right. And, But if I had to um, pick a a couple of favorites, I'd say one of them was a story uh, it it comes from a chapter it's called Remove Blame from the Room and this was a case where I had, I was running a simulation up in Canada. Um, You and I are both familiar with running simulations, Thomas. Um, And you know, there's moving parts, there's a lot of Pieces to the sim and I'm we're in a off-site location where there were no people it wasn't the company's home base it was a place they could use with a room big enough to run a simulation with 25 people a business simulation and uh, when I opened the box and I went to put you know pencils next to each person's station because they'd be writing uh, the pencils weren't sharpened <laughs> I thought Okay. So what do we do now? And you know, the, I, I checked, you know, what were their other implements? They couldn't find things. People didn't necessarily bring their own writing implements. Then they kind of hunted in some of the empty offices and somebody finally it took us about a half an hour. Somebody finally found the, a, a sharpener. The client sat there sharpening pencils very kindly for me, you know, and I was irritated, but we got it, you know, we got it going. And I just thought, okay, so we We'll have a post-mortem back in the office. I'll find out, you know, what, what went wrong. So I came back, and we were having a team meeting, and I just it was a young guy that had packed the box. He was new. And, um, you know, he's, you know, just wanted to – he was just – I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. I heard the pencils weren't sharp, sharpened. I'm so sorry I didn't sharpen those pencils, and, I, and I'll never do that again. And, and I said you – and know, I thought to myself, well, why were they unsharpened? I said, can you – were the can you locate the instructions you were working from because clearly you're grabbing supplies that we had for you like look at the instructions and tell me what does it say and it says oh it just says pack enough pencils for the people there and I said okay does it say sharpened pencils or sharpen the pencils before you put them and he's like no I said okay so you were given unsharpened pencils and you packed you did what you were told so that's on us you know that's on us we got to fix that and we got to you know buy pre-sharpened pencils I can't imagine why there's still unsharpened pencils out there but and and also put that in instructions and he and I remember him saying oh that's a really interesting way to look at this and I thought oh because blame is the norm right that's what we do that's how we operate um you know who's the guilty party and and go after it so you know that stuck with me and I thought oh I've got to be mindful in my position as you know whatever leader I am to whomever to figure out what's the you know it's kind of in our you know the process improvement world it's it's the it's the process not the people obviously people have something to do with it but anyway that was that was one of my favorite stories um, and another one and this one uh the chapter is called Do It Right, Don't Do It Over. And this one happened when I was driving with my husband to Harvard Square. We were going to the Harvard ART, uh, which is where, they, where all their plays are. That's an art center, I guess. And also, I think it's American Repertory Theater. Anyway, we were going there. Parking is tough, you know, as you would imagine, in Harvard Square. And we got a spot. We raced in. And I was concerned because if you arrive after the curtain rises, then, you know, they're not going to let you in right away because you'll be interrupting the show. And we got in there in time. And we got to the desk. And the woman said, looked at us. And I said, you know, we're, we're here. Here's our tickets. And she immediately handed me this sheet of paper. And it had a map of Harvard Square with a yellow highlighted uh, path through it. She had a stack of them. And she gave that to me and she said, the play is at One Arrow Theater. And I said, great, where is that? She said, One Arrow Street. I said, oh, wonderful. And she said, this is how you get there. So we grabbed the sheet, raced across Harvard Square, fu- you know, found the theater, got in there looking a little a little more disheveled, and soon the first thing I saw was a line of people, and they all seemed to be holding the same sheet that I had, that we had, right, with the yellow line through it, and she said, oh, go ahead, stand over here, right in this line, and in about five minutes, there's a lights-out moment in the play. Uh, we will escort you to the front row. We have seats enough for you. And, you know, you all sit down, and then, you know, you'll you'll be all set. And I thought, wow, this has happened before, and they're really good at this. Like, they know exactly what to do, because a lot of people are going to the wrong theater. And, you know, the, I know if I looked at Root Cause, it would be the way the email, the email, the tickets looked, and, and where your eyes went. But, um, you know, it just... To me, that's one of these stories. And while it was happening, I thought, oh, yeah, this is a great story. <laughs> I'll use this when I'm teaching about rework. Because, you know, I had, I had a client with a rework department. It was a financial services firm. And they wanted me and our team to help them make it more efficient. They wanted to do the rework faster. So I told my client this story. And I could see that light bulb go off like, oh, right we're just getting good at something we probably shouldn't be doing and you know that detracts from satisfying work right are we just getting people in some do loop because we haven't figured out how not to do that and so that really stuck with me so those are my two faves thomas
1: like you and i we both have spent many many years right working with organizations from really really large to you know probably something smaller uh, improve their processes, right? And, and, and there's no shortage of methods and, and principles for doing that, right? Lean, I think, uh, offers a, a great set. Um, so your book is really about what leaders can do to improve their own capabilities. And and you know, tell us maybe a little bit about those, those five principles that you use to organize the book, right? That really carries like the key theme through. What are those five principles?
0: So, yeah, that, you know, principles, tenets, um, you know, and these work for all leaders sort of regardless of whether they're engaged in process improvement or lean or Six Sigma or whatever. But, um, you know, the first one is consider your actions. The second is speak thoughtfully. The third is adapt your routines. Fourth is expand your reach. Fifth is treat people with respect and lastly, respect yourself. So let me break those down. So consider your actions means, basically, what are the things that you can do to encourage others, you know, down a good road, right? So like what I just described, you know, not blaming people, uh, not assuming your way is the only way or the right way, necessarily. Questioning rework, like the one I just described. being mindful that whatever you do, you're modeling for others, right? Other people are watching you. So you're often unaware that people are following your lead. You know, if you think about it, if you have kids, you realize it when they start repeating, you know, common phrases you use. And hopefully they're saying things that's okay to repeat. (laughs) But, you know, that's the same thing happens uh, with those you work with. You know, are you doing things you want them to do, right? So So that one is consider your actions. The next one, tenet, is um, speak thoughtfully. So this deals with common traps we fall into around listening, conflict, not including others or the right others, giving people feedback when they have zero interest in hearing it. Um, Lots of stories in there about, you know, getting along with others, what goes into it. Also, just literally speech, right? Speak thoughtfully. Um, I find that, you know, jargon and acronyms have an impact on people in the workplace. Um, If you're not absolutely certain they know what you're talking about, like, you know, the Israeli army, everyone has to learn a set of acronyms, right? And that is absolutely critical for... Safety and saving lives. And the same with hospitals, right? There's acronyms people have to learn again, you're saving lives. But in organizations, you know, we just start, we form jargon, we form acronyms. Uh, you know, uh, Process Improvement World has a ton of them, um, but it's a specialized language. Uh, and that's kind of helps us or causes, it's part of separating into silos, right? People are tribal, silos are tribes. You know, using special words and acronyms creates kind of in-crowds and out-crowds. And something happens once you know a term, you kind of assume everybody knows it. So it's insidious. You don't really think about it. but And they form maybe internal wiki pages or um, uh, some people just, if they're talking, they'll have a flip chart if they use a term. And they'll ask people, if you don't know it, let me know so we can do some... Uh, definitions as we go. But speak thoughtfully is covering just all those aspects of, you know, how we speak to others. The third tenet is uh, adapt your routine, your routines. And that's kind of rich with stories about forming simple habits that help you and others get more out of a workday, right? So one of them might be things like define your boundaries, right? which is incredibly topical because of the rise of work from home options. The fact that people are expected to be sometimes on like 24, seven, you know, how do you create meaningful boundaries? What hours are you available? How fast are you going to respond to emails? Um, Or emails themselves, you know, emails are kind of a rabbit hole. So, you know, how are you planning your work day? Are you spending kind of your prime mental energy moments on just working through emails? Uh, some folks have figured out, oh, i got to turn it off for hours to be able to focus you know, and come back to it. So just that whole idea that your time is an asset, how are you spending it to your advantage? You know, There's tons of great books out there on how to form good habits, but what habits should you be forming? Right? So that's adapting your routines. The fourth one is expand your reach. And this is about getting more out of yourself, like using neuroscience discoveries to, you know, tap your best ideas, things like that, or not letting perfect be the enemy of good. And, you know, like, I'll ask you this, Thomas, um, where where are you, what are you doing when you get your best ideas?
1: It's either in the shower, um, or it's sitting on the back patio.
0: So the neuroscience behind that is that when you're doing something rote, physical, right? Washing the dishes, taking a shower, driving the car, walking the dog. It, it puts your brain into theta waves. And that's where you get your ideal uh, idea flow. So I do this. I used to, uh, when, I, when I would teach this to groups or just be talking about brainstorming, and I'd ask them, and they'd all give me all those answers, right? Or maybe right before you fall asleep or right when you wake up. That's also Theta Waves. And nobody would say at my desk, in a conference room, with the team, <laughs> you know? So it isn't happening at work. So thinking about there's a reason why that happens, so we should take advantage of that, right? And for ourselves, for if we're problem-solving with other people, like keeping that in mind. So things like that, expanding your reach in terms of... Um, your idea flow, another one aspect of that is, you know, the way you're creating. You're creating uh, job aids or or you're writing up uh, notes for people at work or creating um, a manual. Whatever you're doing, uh, Hemingway has a quote that I live by, and I hope it's okay to say this on your podcast, but it's your first draft is shit. So that frees you up to do great work, right? If you just say, well, let me just get this first draft out then I can come back and work on it. So I think that things like that help you get more out of yourself. All right. The fifth one is treat people with respect. And this tenet is about the fact that good leadership involves forming good relationships. And, you know, you and I, uh, big fans of like Edgar Schein, uh, who I know that was a big part of uh, humble leadership humble inquiry, but it involves things like giving people credit, right? Credits free. It's so easy to give people credit, give them, um, thank them, you know, it's often a bigger motivator than money. And, or another piece of that might be uh, something I call returning authority, right? Should you be owning all the things that you do? Is there someone else who could benefit from taking that on, even if they won't, God forbid, do it as well as you at first? So treating people with respect involves all those things, right? Giving them responsibility, passing that off truly, not sort of looking over their shoulder, but letting them take something on. And the last one is respect yourself. And this final tenet uh, covers things like, you know, taking your own advice. We're often more helpful to other people than we are to ourselves. So things like not always asking permission, you know, taking risks, not sticking with a position in a career um, uh, or a job that no longer works, Um, staying flexible. You know, we're all, whether we, you know, think of ourselves as improvisers or not, we all, we do have to improvise. So you might as well be good at that, Um, staying flexible. So those are the six tenets um, of the book, the, the six different sort of parts and chapters.
1: Yeah, I love it. I think it's an incredible resource, I think, for leaders, right? And and it reminds me of a little bit it's like when you get on an airplane, right? It's like put on your oxygen mask first. Um so you can't really help others, right, unless you yourself are in a good good spot. And I think this book provides, I think, a ton of really good practical advice, right? It doesn't require people, I think, to to be a different version of themselves, right? But I think it 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 really I think allows people to, um, to to tap into uh, I think a lot of good wisdom that you accumulated over the years. So I applaud you for that. Um, maybe a slight change of topic. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on what leaders can do to improve the work experience of the people that they're leading. Right. So it's one thing to work on yourself and be the most effective leader you can be, but I think you also have this responsibility, as you said, right, for the people that you're leading. What do you see as as their role? What what can they do? What are the opportunities that people often miss to make work better for others?
0: There's a few simple things that I think make a huge difference. And one thing is clarity. And I find that you cannot hammer things too many times. You can't say them too often. You know, just this effort to make people, make sure people know exactly what you expect, right? Show them. And I think that is something that people miss. There's a lot of unspoken expectations, assumptions and disappointments happening because people didn't know. Um, And when people don't do exactly what you expect to get curious, right? As to why, what did they think you meant? Why do they think um, it either, you know, didn't work or it isn't up to par? Then ask, right? So that... Being curious, starting there when things don't go as planned, you know, don't immediately sort of go, you know, that's not what I wanted. Um, Also, this ability to be open to other, possibly better ideas, right? People closest to the work probably have improvement ideas. I go into this little French bakery in town and I live in a tiny town, 30,000 people I don't know how we scored a French bakery of this caliber. It is easily something I could walk through in, in Paris. And, but it's designed so horrendously that everyone I know, we all talk about it. Like you, we, you know, we know going in there means you're at least got a half an hour of figuring out where the line goes, how to get in it, how to like get out of it to go see what's in the case. It's just, um, it's kludgy. And I remember walking up to the, Counter early on, and I said to the person at the cash register, "I said, I've bet you, I bet you've designed redesigned this place in your head." And she said, "A hundred times." (laughs) And I just think that is just such a great thing. And I know that you people who are you know closest to it, they've got some great ideas. And that means the last piece is you've got to listen. Right. So there's a colleague of ours, John Gasperi, who has one of my favorite quotes. He says the opposite of talking isn't listening. It's waiting to talk. (laughs) And that is just this truism that we all live with. And that's also neuroscience. Right. That is the fact that we speak uh, at 150 words per minute, but we can process at four to 600 words a minute. So there's a gap. Right. And what do we do with that gap? We might be thinking about what we're going to say forming our sentences, thinking about whether we let the dog out, turn the oven off, like whatever. We've got a gap of time. So how do we use that? And it takes discipline to use that to actually focus on that person and what they're saying. So, you know, some people count to 10. Some people write things down, whatever it takes. But that's the last piece of this, which is listen. So those are those are kind of my high levels things that I think make a big difference uh, for leaders to improve, working experiences for others.
1: I think there's also a lack of knowledge, right? I'm always wondering kind of why people are not, uh, why leaders are not more active in fixing work, right? They they clearly see that this is not as effective as it could be, right? They see the lines of people in the bakery. Um, And I'm wondering, is it, it's so like a lack of, of, of knowledge, right? I just don't know what better could look like. Is it a lack of empathy, right? Yes, I see that, you know, that right, people get frustrated, but I, I just don't think it's my job to fix it, right? Is it a lack of so like, confidence not having the skills that, that you know, to, to, to go there? Uh, what do you think it is? I mean, you also have seen plenty of right, bad processes, right? And And I guess many leaders... It's like uh, stepping back and and, and and really ignoring it, I think, for the most part, right? What, what's driving that?
0: I think you kind of hit on it. They're ignoring it because they're used to it. And there's something about the familiarity that drops people's interest. It's not new. It's the way things have been happening. It's like you see people's mission statements on walls and they're, curling and cracked and yellowed and you think, nobody's looking at that. And it's the same thing with a process that's not going well. It's what I described before. They might even be, you know, getting good at the way it is, even though it's full of rework and not, you know, and causing pain. So I think it's that familiarity that you have to actively step back as if you were new and look at a place with outsider's eyes and in fact maybe invite someone to say come you know come look at this and that just doesn't happen unless you make it an intent because there's plenty of things that are on your plate right you could be busy all day right people are 99 percent busy so it's a case of having that be uh you being mindful of it and wanting to look at why are we doing something this way?
1: Yeah, I guess the other thing that comes to mind is there's probably also just the resistance to change or the hesitation to, to change how the work gets done. And building a better organization really requires, I think, oftentimes, right, to, to, to take a hard look at what we do and, and find a, a better way of doing things. Managing change, what kind of advice would you give leaders to do that? And I know there's a, a story in your book, at least one story in your book uh, to do that.
0: First off, always being clear on why. Why is the change happening? And this one, I was working with a small nonprofit in uh, near me, and it was, a, it was a daycare center, a series of daycare centers. And the leadership wanted all of the people in her administration, to be become lean green belts lean six, lean 6 sigma green belts and you know really trained at process improvement and she wanted them all to tackle projects as part of this which i thought was you know fantastic i coached them all and the office manager had chosen to tackle the supply buying process and she was new and she was looking at all of the different buildings and she saw they had dishwashers they had plates they had silverware and they were still buying plastic and paper plates and all that and so and also she said people just she said the process was it was buy as you wish right people teachers and admin would just buy what they needed when they needed it and then she would just get the bills right because they'd maybe use a the corporate credit card so she said okay we're gonna we're gonna reduce the cost uh, and we're gonna change this process so she immediately looked at she had suppliers and she, they were using dozens of suppliers. There was no one supplier. But she said, well, what if we could maybe consolidate? So she found this one supplier and she ordered a new cleanser to use at the different centers. And she brought it to a meeting and she said, here's the new cleanser I want to use. And they all went, you know, this, it's, I don't like the smell. This is going to irritate my skin. Why are we changing things like this? Is, and she realized, oh this isn't going to happen easily. So she went to the CEO and she said, Hey, you know, could we, uh, can you help me basically with this? I don't think anyone is interested in changing the supply process or the, the buying process. She was getting a lot of pushback and the CEO said, uh, absolutely. You have my full support. Let me know. Who do you want me to speak to? And then she thought about it and she thought, well, now I'm just pushing people and I'm using, you know, someone else with positional authority to push through this change. And, that's just not how I pictured this. So, you know, I was coaching her and the next time I got, you know, she told me what she was up against. And then I, next time I saw her, she was all smiles. And I said, what's going on? She goes, I, I had a new idea. And I realized if we could cut, I think it was 1500 a month off the expenses, we could afford the mortgage on a new building for um, the uh you know as part of the vision of the place they wanted to get a new building a new for a new daycare center so once she put that out to people like if we can you know get some savings on consolidation you know look for other savings that uh, and everybody jumped on board they were like oh absolutely that's what we need we need the daycare center it's going to help kids these are all kids uh from needy populations and it was like it, automatic and then people started coming towards saying you know what there's these things we're using, these Verizon phone sticks. Nobody's using them. We should probably all pass those in. Or I, I have a home phone. I'm not I'm using my own cell phone. I don't really need a business one. So they made the savings um, really quickly. They were able to give people bonuses for the first time in the history of the 50-year history of the company. Um, they were able to give raises, um, and they got the new facility. So just being clear on why. And that seems kind of simple, but some people just skip it. And start talking about, you know, we got to reduce expenses, people. Um, and nobody gets excited about reduction, right? Reducing your way to greatness is not, not one of the uh, more exciting things to do. So um, things like that, why it's happening. The other one is to err on the side of inclusion. And this is something I see a lot when, you know, you're managing change and you neglected a, a person, a group, a department, um, and this happens on large and small scales. I was working with, uh, a huge hospital system and the n- group of nurses I was working with completely did a 5S, which is a workplace organization technique for anyone listening. Um, and they did it on the nursing station, right? So it's to really make it clear where the, uh, patient Uh, information was, make it easy to get things, um, put things that they used a lot at waist height, uh, put things they didn't use it often uh, into cabinets. And they were so proud of it. And when the night shift came in, they put it all back to the way it was. (laughs) And they were so, they were confused. They were definitely, uh, you know, took it as a setback. They were insulted, but it really came down to Inclusion, if they had just included those folks, pulled them in, um, helped them uh, understand why they were doing it and included them in it. Uh, so that's a big one. And then another one is uh, back to really getting to know, and I think you mentioned this, like having that curiosity, going to where people are working and understand what they do and what's happening for them and ask questions, but, but also doing it with respect. Right. And that means watching, listening. It means, uh, not calling people out like, Oh, I thought we were supposed to be doing this, right. You're really just being a student of the process. And I think that's something that leadership, um, benefits by really going and trying to understand what other people do so that they can see what you were talking about before, like things could work better, right? I was working with um, some uh, a leader of a group who was providing phones and computer, all, all pieces of technology to the hospital system. And then on the weekends, he would just candy stripe and go and volunteer at the emergency room and he was watching the ER nurse switch between a program that helped her do triage, right? So she's tracking who's coming in and severity. And then she would switch over to see uh, what the uh, cleaning services had made available in terms of rooms, so she knew when she could admit people. But he saw that she would often miss that beds had become available you know, and she could have admitted someone, you know, earlier, or she uh, got stuck, you know, on the bedside and was missing what was happening in terms of triage. So he just went and got her a second monitor, right? But just by watching her work, he was like, oh, this is easy. She doesn't have to switch between apps. She can have both monitors up at the same time. She needs to see these things uh, quickly back and forth. So just by going and watching and listening and asking, um, yeah, that's the other side. Back to that quote about listening. If you ask those questions, then the, the flip side is, is spending that time listening. So those things are are pivotal. So I think those, to me, make a huge difference in managing in managing navigating change.
1: It reminded me of a of a uh, of a project we just finished up that really got triggered by by right, this company. Had, this organization had grown from 200 people to a thousand people. And so, you know, the old workflows did not work at all, right? Uh, In this new context. And so the senior, uh, the the CEO and, uh, and, and the president basically talked to three, 400 people, right? And spent like a half an hour, an hour with each of them to understand, right, what's going well, what's not going well, right? And I thought, that was uh, that was tremendous, and and you know I, I, you rarely see that, right? And and I think that's like an example of you really got to walk that extra mile and and not rely on what you think the work is, right? Because it's probably been twenty years since you've done the work, if you ever did it, right? But actually, right, Gemba, right, go to Gemba, go look and see, and 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 uh, and that's oftentimes so eye opening, right? <laughs> that it actually, right, uh, energizes leaders to do something about it, right? Once you look the problem. In the eye, right? It's it's kind of hard to to turn away from that and and say, yeah, well, I guess we don't need to fix that, right? So I think you're absolutely spot on there. Um, I have a I have a a, a slight detour. Um, so right, you and I we started doing process improvement a while back, right? And uh, and and had had the privilege of you know working with a lot of organizations over the last um, couple of decades, and. Since I think the nineties right technology has become really pervasive in the workplace, and i'd be curious in in two two topics one, do we even need to worry about business process improvement anymore? We can just automate it right we put some robots in there and right so so why fix the process if we can just automate it away right question one uh question number two is um my sense is te- te- that technology, is like the new kind of like property plants equipment. In other words, you put these systems in, they they they're quite sticky, right? It's really hard to rip them out, right? And and so um, right when I don't know right twenty years ago, you could say, oh, this process is broken. Let's fix the form, right? And you could print a new form, and you had a new form, and you had a new process. Now it oftentimes really uh, requires like, you know, extensive uh, system changes, right, and, and, and fixes. And oftentimes, right, those things don't get fixed because the money went out on the project, but you know, there's still so much technical debt. So I'd be curious, like, you know, is this process improvement still relevant? And, and are, you know, is technology like helping or, or hindering in, in terms of getting better performance out of an organization?
0: Oh man, such good questions. And if impacting two clients I'm working with right now. So I'm working with um, UC San Diego Health, so uh, coaching folks and process improvement there. And you've probably seen this a hundred times, but people will show up and they'll say, What's the problem? And they'll say, Lack of automation. (laughs) And they'll say, but what's the problem? Like, what's happening that you think automation is going to solve that? You know, and it's always a, you know, I try to meet them where they are. It's a little, it's a little bit of a tug because they look at me like I've, you know, three heads. It's like, what do you mean? It's just not automated. And I and I'll, I try to get at, you know, what's, what is it? What what is happening right now? And then, you know, we've got months together. We, you know, eventually get them to sort of say what that what that automation was going to solve and then sort of have them dig into it a little bit of, you know, why is it set up the way it is? And, in nine times out of 10, they come back and they, and they kind of have this, you know, the, one guy said to me, you know what, I know I'm going to come into the next process and say, we should just automate this. But I have to say by resisting that initial like knee jerk, just put this, you know, their, their system is called Epic. Just, you know, put this in Epic. He's like, I'm so glad we cleaned that up before we automated it. Um, I wouldn't have done that. I would not have questioned all the steps that we were doing if we just, you know, if you'd allowed us to go straight into what we wanted to do. Um, and I, and another nurse I was talking to, cause they often, they wanna, you know, whatever automation means, you're not necessarily first in line with IT. Right. And they end up with this laundry list of things people want to change. So you might be and nice. I see people getting bumped down, bumped down, bumped down the list so that, you know, months later, they're like, well, I'm still waiting for that to come through. And I'm like, so now I just warn them. I'm like. And it's just for their own preservation. I I say, if you want to graduate with this class, right, because I'm I'm teaching them and I want to help them, you know, become official problem solvers become green belts, lean Six Sigma green belts or lean green belts, they actually call themselves. Anyway, they, uh, if you want to graduate, you're going to have to try something, right? You've got to get through at least one improvement cycle. So don't put all your money on automation because things can go wrong, right? You might not be able to get anything done. So what could you do in the meantime? And that's when they get really curious. And they, I had one nurse who, uh, it was, the rental of breast pumps. And she said it, you know, there was just this very, um, fraught process. It took a long time, lots of rework. And she knew that automating it would having it online be much better. I said, great. And then you know, then she came to the realization that was going to happen for a while. And I said, well, what else could you do? Is there something you have control over? She goes, well, I said, do you know where the big bottleneck is? She goes, oh yeah, it's the credit card information. I said, okay, so uh, what could you do? She goes, oh, well, I could take the stack that's in the gift shop of all the applications and I can just um, highlight what I need from them that they constantly don't put in there. Um, and, and, and I said, well, go for it, right? It's an easy fix or experiment. And she did it and it made a big impact and she could, you know, talk about that. And then it also altered request of IT, she realized a few other things that she wanted to change in terms of what she wanted to go online. So that made a huge difference. So that's kind of the process I go through with folks that, you know, come in thinking, you know, well, lack of automation, right? You should just automate. So the other piece you just asked for, which is the systemic enterprise systems we have in organizations right now. I'm dealing with a state, uh, the a Department of Transportation they have an aging mainframe and they're trying to see what are all the other states doing to basically uh, register and um, document the leasing of big trucks right interstate interstate all that so it's really complicated it touches the feds it touches you know all these different places and the the technology is just daunting, right? How do you transition? How do you uh, make that happen? So you you had a good word for it. You called it sticky, right? That these things become really entrenched and hard to alter. Um, And so, you know, we see it happening. I think that's one of, you know, Twitter's issue, right? That's, it's, they've got really, uh, Things are hinging on old technology that's kind of been patched. And that's what happens. And technology's all getting old, right? I mean, the minute it comes out, it starts to age. So just we're all at different stages. So this idea that we're going to get to some place where these transitions and the stickiness isn't going to be a constant challenge. Um, I don't know. Where are you? Where do you stand with it?
1: It's a really tricky thing, right? Because obviously technology is here to stay. Um, but I feel like one, I think people always think that it's the, it's a silver bullet. It's like you buy these scratch Lado tickets, right? We, we know that 75% of all system implementations fail to deliver any impact. But for some reason, we think, right, we're going to have a winner and we're going to have one of the 25% so that's kind of like all all the games we know right we go we buy another lottery ticket every year we wonder why the price has gone up that's one piece right i think the other piece is i find it hard to see how all these investments in systems like erp systems or crm systems that everybody kind of like right there's sap there's oracle right there's a finite number of companies that offer erp systems and so i just can't for the heck of me can not figure out how you're gonna get competitive advantage out of deploying the same system that everybody else has. The best you can achieve is parity, right? And so, so my view is that I think similar to you, right? You should take a really hard look at how the work gets done and get that right. And then you gotta figure out where technology fits. And then that might be a question around, right? Where do we get off the shelf technology that does the job or where do we, you know, maybe if we have the capacity and capability, right, can build something that's really unique and supports us, right? But, but maybe do that more in like an, in an app format and maybe with an expiration date, you know, on the technology that says, we know this is only gonna last for two years, Um, It reminds me of Sony used to do that when they launched Walkmans back in the the 80s, right? Um, They would say, okay, right, this is like no matter how many, right, uh, how many hundreds of thousands of Walkmans we're going to sell on December 31st, 1991, right? We're going to launch the new model, right? And I feel like why don't we just approach like a lot of these systems with the same mentality, And then maybe we wouldn't kind of make the roots go so deep, right? That we try to connect everything and and kill ourselves trying to disentangle this, right? But I'm not a technologist, but I just see it. I think it's, I see it's a rate limiting factor.
0: I think you're absolutely onto something because it's what happens. It's so entrenched 10 years down the road. Like if you had just set that limit and said, okay, every two years doesn't matter we're looking out there to upgrade this thing. We're just gonna have that be something that we do and we get good at, right? We get good at switching it out.
1: Yeah, we wouldn't right, we wouldn't invest in and double down on, on, on band aids because we know that two years from now it's gone, right? I think this I think that's a really helpful way to look at it, right? But I understand that, you know, obviously, right, now we're in the age of AI, right? The temptation is just there to say, Well, <laughs> you know, maybe Instead of dealing with those pesky humanoids, maybe we can find a shortcut and and, and get a piece of tech to do this for us. Although we've been disappointed for the last 30, 40 years, I I guess it's just a tendency. I want to go back to the book. I think it's a wonderful book. Everybody should have this on their bookshelf. Where can people find it?
0: Uh, You can find it anywhere probably that you find books. like You can get it on Amazon. What was the other one? There's uh, Barnes & Noble's. Yeah, anyway, anywhere you can find books, you can find them, uh, you can find it online.
1: And and if people want to learn a little bit more before they dig in, I I would imagine that you have a website uh, that they could go to.
0: Yes, if you find me on ElizabethSwan.com, but use an S instead of a Z. Also, when you look the book up on any of the online sites, uh, use an S in Elizabeth. Uh, and Swan, but ElizabethSwan.com, just S-W-A-N, just like the bird. Uh, And that's where you'll find more about the book. Or you can, it's got a uh, preview. You can go on um, Amazon and see a preview, sort of get a peek at what you were talking about, Thomas, that you can see how these short little chapters are just a little learnable nugget. You can do it there.
1: Yeah, I think they're addictive. I mean, you got 50 of them, right? So, Right, maybe right one a week. Right would last you a year, but I, but I, but I found that they're 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 so bite-sized. Right, it's, they're like uh, chips. You know, you end up like reading ten of them, and then, then you have to stop yourself. Right, so so they're really uh they're really good. Um, listen, Elizabeth, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing, your perspective on what leaders can do to really build like their leadership and and change, management capabilities. Um, again, I think it's a wonderful book. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: It's a pleasure, Thomas. I love your podcast. It's a pleasure being on. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.